need that we talked about Elijah and need that even identified his name because all the names back in the Hebrew back in those days all meant something significant. Eli's name or Elijah's name meant the Lord is God. But we recognize not only did he have that special name, the Lord is God, that he just abruptly and suddenly appeared on the page of Scripture. You find nothing about Elijah until you come into 1 Kings 17. Today we're 1 Kings 18, continuing the story. But that's when he first appears, suddenly upon the scene. And he does so at the beginning of the 17th chapter in verse 1. And we see as he comes up on the scene, a little bit of information about him not much, but what we really see in verse 1 is that he went before the king, Ahab, and told him there would be no rain, no dew, no moisture. That's what it says really at the end of verse 1. Then we learn after he made that announcement to the king, after he told the king to be no rain, and actually we learned later is three and a half years, that God then would send him to the brook Kerah where he shall drink and receive nourishment as being fed by ravens. That's mentioned in verses 2 through 7. But as we would recognize, as would it make sense, that with no rain that he pronounced to the king, again, the time frame is going to be over three years, that the water is going to dry up. He went to this small brook. He's being fed by the ravens. He's been drinking what he can. But notice in verse 7, that after a while, the brook dried up. Yeah, naturally, because there was no rain in the land which then as the brook dries up, we went further in the text in verses 13 through 16 and saw that God sent him away from the brook Kareth and went to Zarephath, where he meets a widow. And the widow is preparing her last meal. Ascending Elijah to the brook that dries up, being fed by ravens, and then on to Zarephath with the, a lady who is a widow and as one or last meal seems rather odd. I mean, sending him to a place with no sustenance would really seem odd to me, but we've seen ultimately that God provided, and he always does. God always provides, and we see the text telling us the same thing, that he gave the widow all she needed, and her son and Elijah. And verse 16 actually says, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So we see all that to say this, that it seems to be everything that's happening is happening by God being the control for a certain situation. It seems to all be happening according to the word of the Lord for a reason. So in fact, we even went to the, so far to mention and, and even to ask, I mean, the entire story seems to suggest that God must be up to something, that nothing is happening by accident. So the question now we entertain that we thought about last week would be, why would God send his servant Elijah to a brook that dries up and then to a widow in Zarephath, of all places where we could go, that has no food? Why would God do such a thing? It leaves the impression that there must be more to the story that the narrator here is not telling us. So, I mean, what is the narrator not telling us? Well, just the fact that we mentioned last week that Zarephath happens to be the center of Baal worship. And Baal, of course, is that false pagan god that Ahab and his wicked evil wife Jezebel demand for everybody to worship. That God has positioned 
his servant, the Lord is God is his name, Elijah, in the center of Baal country, in order that all the people will now know that there is only one God. It is not Baal, as King Ahab and Jezebel are insisting for all the people to worship. They're demanding they worship their God, Baal, the false pagan God. God is sending his servant there to make sure they realize there's only one God. I, I presented to you as a, a classic in your face veil moment. I mean, it's like God is saying, by sending Elijah to Zarephath, the center of Baal country, it's like God is saying, look, Baal, Elijah, I mean, Ahab, and, and Jezebel, Jezebel, you think that your God, Baal, is all that? And what? Bag of chips, you knew it was coming? You're not. You're not all that. But I am because I am God. I am the great I am. I'm God. I am it. You're not in your face. So as much as I stress that last week was an in-your-face moment by sending Elijah to the center of Baal worship in Zarephath, and the in-your-face, that is nothing as compared to today's story. Today's story of 1 Kings 18 is truly an in-your-face moment. So let us continue the story pertaining to Elijah. We continue to learn. We're in 1 Kings 18. I have preached this before, not to you, I don't believe, but we have called it, I, I called it in the previous message, Burn, Baby, Burn. And you'll find out later, perhaps, why we would call it Burn, Baby, Burn, if you're not familiar with the story. So same with me this morning. We're not going to read the entirety of the 18th chapter. Maybe later you can. But we're going to read over the first couple of verses and then jump down to verse 17 where the story kind of continues. So in verse 1 of 1 Kings 18, here's how the story continues pertaining to Elijah. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. There it tells us again that the drought and the famine condition has been happening for three years, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. I'll send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, which we can certainly understand. Verse 17, jump down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to them, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me and Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. We'll come back to that later. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am only the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, 
and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, for he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So notice they agreed that would be a good plan. Verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of the Baal from morning to, until noon. Then, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar and, that they had made. And at noon, verse 27, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry out aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one had answered. No one paid attention. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar the Lord had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And, all, and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And he did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And he did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and they have you, and they have turned their backs toward you. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, that fell on their faces, and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And finally, verse 40, Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Kishron and slaughtered them there. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this text today, a wonderful illustration story, Lord, of how you are mighty, how you are God. Lord, today we'll recognize that perhaps we have idols in our life. If so, Lord, today let us rid ourselves of any idol that we may have. And position ourselves, Lord, according to the word to put you first in our life. Let us rid ourselves of anything that we would dare worship beside you. Let this message today, Lord, you've chosen for us to have through looking at Elijah. Speak to us in modern day. Let's apply it understand it, and let us today, Lord, put you first. If you're not first, put you first in our life. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Well, it's a really long reading, and I didn't offer all the text to be read. I mean, we skipped over a large portion of it, and there's even more after we stop through verse 46. But it's a rather large reading, and it takes some time to read it. But notice through the reading that once again, as we saw last week, our major players in the story are again Elijah and Ahab. Notice how the account directly begins with Elijah confronting Ahab and, and informing him that rain would soon be on the way. I mean, perhaps not so subtly reminding Ahab, as I mentioned kind of earlier, that God is in control of the elements, the weather, the rain, the snow, the so forth. All, God is in control of all these different things. I mean, in essence, he tells Ahab through his servant Elijah that rain will come when I send it because I am the Lord and the Lord has spoken. But also notice then as that's the beginning of the reading in verse 17 that Ahab then refers to Elijah as a trouble in which Elijah quickly corrects him and says, no, I'm not the troubler, dude. You are. Hey, bro, I'm not it. You are. You're the troubler, not me. Ahab said to him in verse 17, is it you, O troubler? He says, I have not troubled Israel. You have. Ahab is the source of trouble, not Elijah. So essentially, Ahab and Jezebel have been blaming Elijah. For three years, there's not been any moisture, not rain, not dew, nothing of the kind for three years, and they're blaming Elijah for the stoppage of all the moisture, the rain. But observe, it's, it's not Elijah that has caused the Lord to stop the rain and consequently bring the famine and the drought conditions. But rather Ahab and his wife Jezebel and their persistence, their demanding upon the people to deny God and worship Baal. Ahab is the troubler. And again, why is Ahab the troubler? Because verse 18 tells us he's, eventually, he's essentially convinced everyone to worship Baal. Verse 18 says, uh, they abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baal. Now, of course, Ahab doesn't see it that way. And as mentioned, he blames Elijah as we can easily discern from the text. It points us to a really quick observation, perhaps an application. One thing I call the blame game. The blame game is a game played by nearly everyone at some point in life. It, it can happen before we even realize and we can go about our a life. You know, no matter what age we are, it can happen from a two-year-old to a hundred-year-old. We're going about life and whatever facet we're doing, and before we realize it, bam! We're in the blame game. I mean, how is the blame game played? Well, you may know. It starts when things don't go the way maybe we have planned. And things just don't go our way. And as a result, we blame and we justify. Now, interestingly, and in honesty, we should mention this as well, the blame game happens to both Christians and non-Christians. I mean, that point is revealed in last week's message as well as today. Go with me again to last week in 1 Kings 17. Notice as we had 
to Elijah to arrive to Zarephath, and the widow's preparing the last meal, her son has an illness and dies. In verse 18, she blames Elijah. She blames Elijah for her son's death. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. She blames him for the death of her son. But if you look at Elijah and his reaction, it's not much different. He, he also enters the blame game rather suddenly because he nearly passes all the blame to God. Verse 20. He cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity? Even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by, by killing her son. So, I mean, it's like he passes blame not for himself when she blames him onto God. I mean, Elijah's not the source of the boy's illness. But we see him react in a similar fashion and nearly suggesting or blaming God. He was in the blame game. And here in today's text, we see King Ahab. Playing the, playing the blame game. I mean, he believes, Ahab believes the lack of rain is because of Elijah and blames him, calling him even a troubler. But it's actually due to him, to Ahab, and his false worship of a pagan god is why there's no rain. That observation brings up an application. I mean, why is it that we often excuse ourselves and blame others? I mean, why do we tend to justify our actions and then look upon others' actions as inexcusable? I mean, it's what we do. We often see our sin as a minor little flaw, and we can justify it. But we look upon the sin of others as a major offense. Their sin is inexcusable. Or mine because of something else. I mean, maybe the point here then is sin is sin in the eyes of the Lord. And no sin is justified. Not mine, not yours, not anyone. I mean, no sin is justifiable. But we often rationalize it and or blame others. That's not the main point of the text, but notice how that kind of comes up for just a moment. That we can look at our sin as something that is minor and doesn't really hurt, that others are inexcusable. And we can blame and justify. That's what seems to be happening here for Ahab. But getting back to the story, let's continue. After the brief exchange now between Elijah and Ahab, we must go to verse 21. Because now, all that's happening, Elijah comes in front of the people and asks a very important question you cannot miss. Verse 21. He came near the people. He said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. I mean, apparently it must have perplexed the people greatly because I look at the end of verse 21 and I see the people did not answer him a word. So he asked him, look, if, if Baal's God, you go follow Baal. If, if God is God, you follow him. I mean, how are we going to, I mean, teeter between two different positions? And they didn't even answer him. 
I mean, I don't know. Maybe they needed time to process. I mean, maybe to them, they're not understanding. I mean, it's like kids on the bus, okay? If I tell them, don't eat on the bus. One little boy come to me last week. He had a honey bun. And he said, Kirk, can I eat my honey bun? I said, no. A little bit later, one of the boys comes to me and says, um, Ashton's eating his honey bun. I said, what part of it did you not understand? So I, I made him, he had two bites left of his honey bun. And he made him bring it to the front of the bus where I stopped for a little bit. I got on him some. I said, how do you understand? I said, no, means no. He brought it up there, two bites left. I threw it in the trash. I mean, so it's like people are perplexed. I mean, they're not listening. There's something seems to be going on, and they can't answer. They don't seem to understand. It ought to be an easy question. It says you cannot eat your honey bun. It was simple. They didn't understand the question, which God are you going to follow? It seemed pretty easy to me. If it's God, follow God. If it's your God, follow him. He gives them an opinion. He gives them an option. They didn't seem to understand. They did not answer a word. I'm thinking about it. It seems like a pretty easy question to me. I mean, basically, the question is asking, look, okay, who are you going to serve? A false, idolatrous God that you call Baal? Or the great, almighty, sovereign God, Yahweh, the great I Am? And the question should be really easy. Are you with me? The question should be easy, yes? But they didn't answer. I mean, it almost reminds me of what happened to Joshua in chapter 25. A similar question he posed to the people. Verse 15. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But then Joshua made it clear at the very end. But as for me and my house, we will serve who? We will serve the Lord. But Joshua had a similar question he asked the people, and then, matter of fact, we say, okay, I'm going to serve the Lord. But notice how it must not be an easy answer for the people. It's a very important question, and the people do not answer. Maybe I'll put that question to the world today. Maybe we need to ask as we go into the world, what? Who are you going to serve? Who or what are you going to worship? And unfortunately, many people either don't understand and answer the question like this particular group, or they simply choose to worship or serve someone or something else. And while their words may express a desire to worship God, we often see their actions telling us something else. I read an old article in Christianity Today that correctly states that idolatry, worshiping something or someone other than God, was completely different from what it once was. And that is so true. If you're looking behind me, you can already see some different ways in which we have idolatry. I mean, it's not hard to see in Scripture even in the text today, I mean, we clearly see how Ahab and Jezebel are following Baal. I mean, it keeps coming up time and time again. They're demanding everybody to follow their God, Baal. It's easy to see that. And, and equally, you go other parts of Scripture, earlier in the Bible, you can see other instances come up 
we find a dollar tree and false worship of gods. I mean, in Exodus 32, we have the golden calf. You can find these things in Scripture. A dollar tree is present in the Word. But we also know what it told us in Exodus chapter 20. But the big ten, it says, first and foremost, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything in the heaven above or in the earth below or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. It seems pretty clear. In the text, we observe the disobedience of Ahab and Jezebel's worship to Baal. But in our lives, we may not so easily recognize our idolatry. But often it's there. It may not be in the shape of a golden calf or Baal, but it's there. And here are some illustrations and examples of how we sometimes position these things above God. And anything that takes its place above God is a form of idolatry work. So many different times we work so hard to have a sense of accomplishment. But that can be dangerous when it drives decision making to the point of completely ignoring God's ways and positioning work first. Along with work is success. But success as we spend time at work often accompanies it. But it's not just within work that we can find success addictive. Success can be addicting lives. We want everything to be so perfect. We want the perfect spouse, the perfect relationship, the perfect kids, perfect holidays. Everything would be perfect because we want it to be successful. So success can even be something that we position before God. The third is something that if you're like me, that's 60 years old and above, it may not be your idol. But for many younger people, it truly is. Technology, phones. Tablet, TikTok, Facebook, Nintendo Switch, Xbox, YouTube. It's all there. The younger generation is consumed. Have you noticed? They're consumed with these things. So much so that they'll spend every waking hour of the day. I don't mean to blame just younger people, teenagers. I know several people closer to my age that do the exact same thing. I'm not into that, but I know people who I work with that are consumed the entire lunch period with Facebook. They barely eat their meal because they're looking through Facebook the entire time. People stay on their phones all night long. Let me just say, if you're giving more time to phones, Xbox, Nintendo, TikTok, YouTube, if you have more time to that than God, your priorities are definitely in the wrong order. Sexual desire and lust. In the modern age of the internet, this is becoming a big problem. Pornography has always been a problem, but now it's maybe a bigger problem than it's ever been. It's a gross misrepresentation of the God desired for married men and women. But now through the internet, Younger people are being exposed to things they should never know about. I don't even want to get into stories I hear on the bus. But they hear this stuff. They see this stuff. And it can consume them. Of course, money is the fifth one on our list. And money, of course,
course, had to be in the list of things that are idolatry. It's one of the old forms of idolatry. Jesus stated in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or the other, or else be loyal to the one who despise the other. You cannot serve God in man. And then finally, the other form of idolatry, I give you half a dozen, there's more, but here it is. It's sports, it's athletes, it's entertainers. We are so consumed by these types of things that we, like Sheila said earlier with the children, they become our role models. And it's not a good person to have as a role model. We, we vaguely know anything about that person except what they do on TV or in the sports arena or, or in a concert. But we worship them. Do we worship them? These are the idols that are prevalent today. It's different than before. But notice how these things position them before, themselves before God. So we need to go back to the question, go back to the text. We should bring the question. Elijah's asking the people a very important question, verse 21. That question needs to be asked again today. How long, people, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But put in the name of your God, if that's your God, then follow him. It's almost like a, a sarcastic question where there's only one real answer. But maybe we need today more Elijah's asking that question to have people to wake up. But notice that the people seemingly hesitate to answer. Again, there was no word at the end of verse 21. Elijah then, he doesn't leave it there. He goes into a world-class illustration about making it easy for them to decide who to worship, even taunting both the Baal worshipers and Baal himself. It's a classic demonstration of the lack of power of false god and the great mighty power of our god. We go back to the text. We're going to read it again, but we're going to kind of paraphrase and say it like a modern-day Elijah. Look with me, verses 23 through 27, where Elijah begins to address the crowd. He's asked them the question, who are you going to worship? And then he goes out and has a great illustration. And notice the first thing he does is bring all the crowd together. He says, hey, y'all seem undecided, so let us do something interesting. Verse 23, recognize how he says, let's get two bulls. How many? All right, thanks for playing. Two bulls. One for Baal and one for God. He said, each of us is going to slaughter it, cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood, but do not light the fire. Verse 24, he says, now I want you then to call out to your God, and I'm going to call out to my God. And the God who lights the fire, well, let him be God. Are you okay with that? And notice how they say, yeah, I mean, we're pretty good with that. I mean, they all kind of agree. They couldn't answer earlier, but now with the illustration, they seem to answer, okay, we'll be okay with that. We're going to cut up a bull. We're going to put it on our, fire, our, our wood, not like the fire yet. You're going to do the same thing. We're okay with that. And then he says, by the way, y'all get to go first. So you go ahead. I'm going to watch. You butcher it. You clean it. You dress it. Put it on the wood and call it your God. And meanwhile... I'm going to wait and see what happens. But Elijah waits, and he waits, and he waits some more. 
Notice in verse 26, nothing's happening. About six hours, it says, from morning till noon. In my mind, it's six hours. Morning till noon, nothing has happened yet. So verse 27, he says, maybe you need to cry out a little louder. Could it be your God is busy napping or even relieving himself? Is he busy sleeping, napping? I, I think that's intentional that Elijah even inserts that, this busy sleeping, napping, so forth. Because a great almighty sovereign God that we serve is never too busy, never, never sleeping. He, he's always available for us, right? And, and, and Psalms 121 verse 4 says, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Our God is always available. But I think it's almost intentional, he says. I mean, is he busy? Is he sleeping? I don't know if he's relieving himself, but he says, I mean, is he busy, sleeping? I think it's intentional. But to notice after that's happening, he, he encourages them to cry out louder. They cut themselves, do all these silly things to be able to position themselves before their God to respond with all these different hysterics all day long to the evening sacrifice, as I mentioned in verse 29. And Elijah finally steps in and says, okay, enough is enough. Now it's my turn. And in verse 30, again, he says, y'all come close. I mean, you're close, you're doing your thing, now come close to me. I'm going to show you something, because now it's my turn. I'm going to take 12 stones, first of all, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and build an altar. And then I'm going to build a trench around it and put the wood upon the altar. And he's not done yet. And he says, I, 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 this might sound crazy. He's talking to the people. They're close to him. It's not crazy, but and you might think it's absurd, but I want you to go get four barrels of water. Our text doesn't say barrels. But I say barrels of water because I don't want you to get the impression here that the people go get these little mason jars of water. I mean, first of all, we think in our mind, well, it's a drought condition. Where do you even find the water? Put that out of your mind. Somehow, some way, they find water. And they're not getting your mason jars of water. They're getting barrels of water. Some commentaries suggest it was one to four gallons of water in each barrel. And they go and get the water for them, so at least four gallons, right? And they pour it on the wood. And then Elijah says, okay, I know that seems silly, but I want you to go do it now a second time. Go fill them up again, bring the water back, pour it on there. And then he says, wait a minute, that's still not enough. I know it's been twice, but get it the third time. So if it's, by math, been four gallons, say, each time they went, and they went how many times? It'd be how many gallons of water? At least 12. Not little mason jars poured on the wood. Are you with me? All right. How many gallons? Make sure you're still with me. He said, okay, that looks good. And then it's time for Elijah to pray. Verse 36 and verse 37. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. He prays. And then look what happened. Fire fell from the heavens and consumed the wood. 
This is where I say, burn, baby, burn. Now you can get to see how the message, how it comes together. Burn, baby, burn. And look at verse 38. The fire of the wood fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. I mean, everything is out there is being consumed and the dust and licked up the water. How much again? At least. That was in the trench. I mean, all of it is gone. I mean, it's like the water, the fire must have been so severe, the water just kind of boiled and evaporated. Everything is gone. And then the entire, the point of the entire demonstration, verse 39, they said, the Lord, he is God. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And it's just a great, awesome story. I mean, I could preach it every week throughout the city, throughout the state, throughout the country. It's just a great story of how there's truly only one God. In fact, it really shouldn't be a preacher preaching. It should, all the people should preach this story throughout the land, throughout the great country we live in. I mean, notice that Baal worshippers saw this water-soaked wood just ignite, and, and the ground becomes as dust. And they fall on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. It's such a powerful illustration. And it just brings the question up for us to certainly apply, but for all the people really to apply, when was the last time that you fell on your face and acknowledged the Lord is God? Do we do that? Or even, when was the last time our city, our country, fell through the face or their knees and acknowledged the Lord is God? When's the last time it's happened to you or to this great country we live in? Do government leaders do this? I haven't seen it. But imagine what the country would be like if we and they did. Imagine what it would be like. Now, if you're like me, you live long enough, you think, I don't have to imagine it, I saw it. I've seen it personally being witnessed because there was an incident on November or, or September 11th of 2001 in which the country came to its knees, did it not? 9-11, if you're alive and well, you know exactly where you were at when you heard the news. It was a Tuesday of 2001 in which the planes flew in to the tower. And everything after that completely got worse. We saw what happened when we're brought to our knees as a country. It brought people together on their knees praying to God. It filled churches across the country. I remember living in Mississippi as I heard about it, working in a chicken plant in Vicksburg, Mississippi at the time. But I remember after work, we went back to Clinton, Mississippi, where I lived, and we went to church. It was a Tuesday night. It wasn't Sunday. It wasn't Wednesday. It was a Tuesday night. People went to church. We prayed. It brought people together like it had never been seen. That was 2001. In the math, I see we're 2023. So now I ask, where are they? For that matter, where is the country today? For the most part today, just observing some things happening, we are divided. 
maybe as much as we've ever been divided in our country. I mean, yeah, I know, I know we had the division back during the Civil War, which is pretty intense. We had brother fighting brother, father against brother, whatever. But in some ways, we have that today. Maybe not the literal fighting as in the war, but we still have major fighting going on. It, it, it's strife, it's conflict, it's evil, it's hatred that exists in our country. Do you not see we're divided in our country? So I'm putting all this together this week in my mind. I'm thinking perhaps then, perhaps, per, work with me, perhaps the division in our country, the evil, the conflict, the hatred, all these different things, perhaps that exist today because of the direct result of idolatry that's in our lives. Maybe our country's worship of sports and athletes and entertainers, money, lust, all these different things is resulting in our destruction. I mean, does this sound far-fetched? Am I on this limb all by myself? I mean, does this sound whack to you that, that suggesting that that, that things happening is a result of our idolatry? And that'd be completely because of that, but it's certainly not helping, right? I mean, if you think all of this is kind of far-fetched, then ask yourself this question, is God pleased when I position or I worship something or someone other than him? I mean, is he pleased when that happens? I mean, the answer is, of course he's not pleased. God is not pleased one iota when we decide to worship someone or something other than him. He alone does not, deserves our worship. Nothing else. But so often we position something before God. Work, money, sports. When I lived in Mississippi, we actually had, I coached soccer. Josh, I coached soccer and lived in Mississippi. And we had tournaments that would go through the weekend and if you did well enough in a tournament on a Saturday, you got to the uh, final, final game on Sunday. The final games were played Sunday morning. So as a coach, I kind of felt obligated to be there, right, for Sunday morning. If we, we did well enough on Saturday, we go into Sunday morning, like the final round. And then when in finally to Sunday afternoon, we're in the championship game. I had one particular kid on my team. This is primarily 10 to 12-year-olds who – we went into Sunday morning. They, they called me Sunday morning and said, I can't remember the kid's name. He said he would not be at the game. I'm thinking, why not? Because we go to church. How often does that really happen? Most kids were at the game. I was at the game. I was not in church. I was not putting God first. That child strode to me like she was talking about with role model for the kids how that should have been my decision how I was practicing the dollar putting the sport before God but don't we do that I mean the question is is God pleased when I position when I worship someone or something other than him of course he is not pleased and in the text we see that I mean, he was not pleased with Baal worship. And he had his servant, Elijah, to go to Zarephath and completely confront it and has a powerful illustration in chapter 18 
that just makes it all real. I mean, God positioned his servant Elijah at the center of blatant idolatry. He showed all the people who really is God. It's an in-your-face, Baal. In your face, you idolatrous people. And I present to you, I even ask you, do we need God to intervene in our lives and give us an in-your-face moment? And I answered that maybe he just did. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today, Lord, as it tells us something that we need to hear, that we do have idolatry. We are guilty of this sin. We thank you for the message today to give us that realization and even maybe an in-your-face for us to recognize that we are guilty. We put things before you. I stand before you, Lord, guilty as charged. We're all guilty of having some situation in our lives where we put something or someone before you. But today, Lord, our petition is, is, is simple. We want to reposition our lives as individuals, as a church, to put you first in all that we do. We don't want to take any recognition for anything that we do as individuals or as a church. It's all about you, Lord. Today, we worship you. You alone deserve our worship. Today, eternity. We give up our false gods, and we give you position one. Just where you need to be, just where you shall be. In Jesus' name, I pray.